When I started at Campus Chapel in Ann Arbor, Don Postma, who'd been the chaplain there from the early 60s and then retired in the 90s, he said, you know what, you're going to discover that your preaching has a theme, that over time you sort of preach the same sermon over and over again in different ways. And I think, you know, having done this for a while, I think he's right. And I suppose if you were to narrow that theme down to a single word, it would be resurrection and what that means. Because it all hinges on that. The truth is, if some archaeologists were to dig up a sarcophagus that somehow they could prov- uh, prove beyond a, sh- a doubt that it belonged to Jesus, you know, I guess at that point I'd have to write a letter of re- uh, resignation. I couldn't in good conscience receive a salary for this work. And I don't have any interest in just coming up here and offering advice or waxing philosophical. It all only holds together if violence and death were not allowed to have final say over Jesus' life. If Jesus is a box of bones, so is my faith. And that's kind of a scary thing to admit. After all, demographers estimate that the last 200,000 years have produced about 117 billion people. How many of them bodily resurrected? One. That's not many. In fact, the number of resurrected humans barely outnumbers the number of humans who have flapped their arms vigorously enough to fly around a room. The resurrected beats out the flight capable by one. One, two, zip. Their numbers are so close because of what they have in common. Both arm-generated flight and resurrection from death defy natural law. You might say, yeah, well, people can be resuscitated after dying. So is it really such a stretch? Uh, Let's just say this. Resuscitation is to resurrection what falling is to flight. They resemble one another for a while. Eventually, the difference is very clear. So of the 117 billion people, we claim there is one exception to the rules about death. And our passage this morning describes what it's like to find yourself in the presence of this exception. It says they worship. That makes total sense. Here's someone who violated ironclad laws, who is evidence of a scientific impossibility. Is falling to your knees even a conscious choice, or are you just so thrown off balance that you can't help but fall to your knees? What's interesting is that, according to the text, that's not their only response. There is also doubt. Our text translates this as if there are doubters and there are worshipers. But the Greek itself is less clear. It could also refer to the disciples as a whole. They respond with a mixture of awe and doubt. Can it be Jesus? And can it be Jesus? This doubt is not addressed. Unlike in the upper room, and again with Thomas, Jesus doesn't say, hey, look, fellas, here, nail holes. Look at this, side wound. It's me. No, Jesus moves on, just gives them their instructions, gives them what's called the Great Commission. 
Apparently, having doubts, struggling to figure out what is happening here, doesn't disqualify them from being sent into the world. It seems to me, this passage suggests that Jesus is more tolerant of our doubt than we often are. We would much prefer clarity, even certainty. Unfortunately, when we do make efforts to remove doubt, those efforts often backfire. For instance, you know, uh, as we developed our capacity to articulate and understand scientific laws that dictated life in the world, boy, the Bible started to feel a little embarrassing. I mean, all its miracles, its story of resurrection. And so, for example, in the 19th century, you have these German scholars who took it upon themselves to peel away the mythology and determine what was the essence of Christianity. And what it was really about, according uh, to those critics, was the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. That about sums it up, right, ladies? Who can doubt the importance of that? You know, all the other stuff, well, don't worry about it. It's not important. The problem with this faith, this faith that easy to believe, is that it's also pretty shallow. You know, it may have worked for some 19th century scholars, but in the, in the 20th century, particularly in Germany, there was massive upheaval. It turns out that a shallow faith doesn't give you much, that doesn't give you much to doubt, also doesn't give you much to believe in. It doesn't give you much in the way of hope. And so what was created was a void. People needed something to believe in, and there was somebody ready to give them something to believe in. Adolf Hitler offered a new faith, but it too was a faith that had little room for doubt. In a time of uncertainty and upheaval, when everything is being called into question, that has a lot of appeal. Eventually, as we know, this faith led its adherents to pursue genocide. Now, but it's important to remember that had they just started with that, well, people probably would have had a lot of doubts about this Hitler guy. So you can't start there. You have to get there gradually. Before you start eliminating people, you got to eliminate ideas. Idea, these ideas that challenged their faith, their certainty in things. You had to get rid of those things that caused doubt. So first, it starts with burning books. I learned this past week that the first book burning occurred at the Institute of Sexology in May of 1933. And it makes sense that you would start there. Because in the midst of upheaval and uncertainty, one thing the vast majority of people know to be true is this. Who is a man and who is a woman? And the Institute of Sexology had a lot of research that demonstrates there are a range of exceptions to this. And they advocated for rights for those exceptions. And it made everybody feel a little uncomfortable. It made them feel like it was just perverse. So, burn it all. Now, of course, you probably can see the parallels to what's happening today in our state and in many states uh, across our country. But I want to make clear that I'm not suggesting that uh, there's a Nazi agenda. 
But I do think we ought to recognize that there are parallels because we too live in a world in upheaval, a world in crisis. We are a nation that is deeply divided, that struggles to find common ground on anything. And when everything feels unstable and insecure, we look for things to be certain about. I know what a man is. I know what a woman is. And I know what perversion is. And Christians who support this sort of legislation argue that it is their faith, their faith in God that gives them this certainty. They point to Genesis. God creates man and woman. Those who identify in some other way are defying God's intention. Now, I find reading Genesis 1 that way a little problematic. After all, it also says God created the birds of the air. Do penguins defy God's intention? Do we need to legislate against ostriches? God created the beasts of the field. Do dolphins and whales need to repent of their aquatic lifestyle? Of course not. We recognize that the text is speaking in generalities. To expect that it would add all the various qualifiers and exceptions is to impose a standard on the text that it's not interested in meeting. But we spent six months discussing Genesis, and I really need to move on. And we are at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus's, where Jesus issues the Great Commission. He's issuing this command to disciples who, again, are a mixture of worship and doubt, belief and bafflement. These are, for them, uncertain times. And it's worth noting, in other places, in the Gospels, how they respond to this uncertainty. They don't know what to do with the questions and doubts that confront them after Easter. They can't wrap their heads around it. For instance, there's the incident in the Gospel of John. When the disciples are sitting around, their minds sort of blown, and Peter suddenly pipes up, I'm going fishing. In other words, I don't know how to handle this, and so I'm going back to do what I, I know to do. I'm going to go back to the professional that put, that put food on the table before Jesus shook up my life. And the rest of the disciples join him. What's interesting is they don't go back to their old ways because they can't catch any fish. Right? They catch nothing. Then someone on the shore says, hey, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. And suddenly they have a huge haul. Resurrection won't leave them alone. I also think about Luke's account of the, uh, the ascension. And as in this passage, Jesus gathers the disciples on the top of a mountain, except this time it's in Jerusalem, not in Galilee. And one of the disciples says, hey, Lord, is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? This too reflects the, the disciples reverting, not to an activity, but to a way of thinking. They're not sure what to make of resurrection, but they assume that somehow it's going to fulfill all their old expectations. They've been so sure that the Messiah would restore the nation of Israel to its former glory. It was just a matter of when. So, Jesus, is that what's about to go down here? The defeat of Rome, the return of the Davidic throne, when Jesus responds, he doesn't really clarify any of that. He just says this. It's not for you to know the times and periods that the Father has set by his own authority. 
In other words, get used to living with unknowns. Stop thinking you have to have it all figured out. Which brings us back to our passage. You know, one of the things that's interesting is that you know, Jesus is from the region of Galilee, the northern part of Israel. Jerusalem, of course, is in the southern region, uh, in, in Judea. Uh, and between those two, you have Samaria. The majority of Jesus' ministry is conducted in the region of Galilee, the backwoods of Israel. But notice what Jesus says to these disciples on a hill in Galilee with, with their worship and doubt. He says, go. Where? To all nations. And bring them the sign of re resurrection. Given those doubts, the disciples might have panicked at this point. Might have put them back on the boat to do more fishing. But there is also a command, there's a promise that accompanies this command. Remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Whatever doubts they may have had, they want this. They want Jesus. And as I said last week, these words addressed to disciples are words addressed to us. We have to understand Jesus is talking to us, that we too are sent. And some have heard these words and taken them very literally and said, all right, I'm going to go to some remote part of the world and proclaim resurrection. But we can hear them as words for us, even if we don't need a passport. Even if we stay rather than go, the fact is we often find ourselves in unfamiliar territory. We can stay within the same borders and still feel at times like we are in a different country, confronting unfamiliar priorities, values, ways of being in the world. Some of that it may be exciting, but lots of it is destabilizing. We're not always sure what to make of it. What Jesus is telling us here is that being in a place like that it's not a bad thing it isn't necessarily an indication that we're doing something wrong jesus calls us to places like that that's precisely where we are called to participate in the work of resurrection what i mean is because resurrection isn't just a thing that was done it's not just something that jesus did but it is what jesus is doing and so what was it that jesus did on good friday Jesus did, you know, wasn't just in a place of insecurity and uncertainty. He was in a, in a place of death. He was to be killed. He did not just go to a strange country. He entered the great unknown, the place of no return. Did he have doubt? Did he not cry out, my God, my God, why? And yet that is where he went. He crossed that border. And that is where he brought resurrection. And each of us, in our own way, are called to do the same. Now, let's be very clear. Our state and states across the United States are passing laws to make certain that a particular people start to feel like they are aliens in this country. Not just aliens in their state or their country, but aliens in their own body because they are being told that their experience 
is wrong. And often they're being told that having that experience makes them suspect. I realize that talking about sexuality in a sermon is awkward. Well, unless uh, you're shaming people, that then that's that's uh, we're kind of used to sermons like that. But anyway, but what I think many people fail to realize is that most trans people aren't interested in us thinking about their sexuality either. Making their private parts public discussion, that's something we do. Legislators will claim that these laws are for the benefit of the kids themselves, but research has made clear that that's just wrong. When a kid can't get the care that enables them to ensure that you don't know uh, when, their, when their sexuality is exposed, the consequences of that are devastating. They don't want to live as a foreigner in their body. And in fact, some will choose to, to go instead to that place of no return. Jesus knows we have doubts, that we prefer stability and security. Jesus knows how much comfort we find in being certain. But most certainties are either fabricated or are fleeting. In fact, the Heidelberg Catechism tells us we have only one certainty that we can take comfort in. What is my only comfort in life and in death? Is it my nationality, tax bracket, age, gender, orientation, political affiliation? Is it my intelligence? No. None of those things offer any certainty. None of those things are things we should put our faith in. Because there is only one comfort. My only comfort in life and in death is this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's it. And we are called to make that known. We may differ in our nationality, tax bracket, age, gender, orientation, political affiliation, and groups, but we are united in resurrection. Go and make that known, says Jesus. And remember, that's where you'll find me, right there with you. That's where you'll discover that resurrection didn't just happen, but that it is happening. In the name of the Father, and the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.